0: Good morning. Uh, As Aaron said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Uh, Excited, honored to be with you, to share with you God's word. Uh, This morning we are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Chasing Meaning. And this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 8, starting in verse 10. As is our custom here at Christ Central, I'd like to invite you to stand. Uh, as we give reverence to the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 8, starting in verse 10. Preacher says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not... Executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I, I laid to heart examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would allow me, your unworthy servant, to get out of your way so that you might bring your truth to us, your people. Father, we ask that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear and hearts to understand in Jesus name, amen. You can be seated. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, there were certain phrases that my parents, in my opinion, used far too often. Phrases that as a child, I vowed I would never use if I was given the chance to one day be a parent. Probably first on that list was the phrase, life's not fair. And I wish I could say that I've kept my promise, but if my kids were here, they would get onto me for lying in church. Uh, I say it quite often, but in my defense, I think the reason why parents, and really all of us use this phrase, often it's because as we get older, we become more and more convinced how absolutely true this phrase is. This past week, I got the chance to watch the remake of the Disney classic, The Lion King, with my son. And there's a quote from the movie that struck me, a quote that I'm quite sure I missed as a child. And it's a quote that I might add, sounds like it comes straight out of Ecclesiastes. It It sounds like it comes straight out of the mouth of Kohelet, the author of this text. And it's a quote by Scar, the the villain of the film. And it's in his opening monologue, and in in this scene, he's talking to a mouse, a mouse that he's about to consume. And he says this. He says, life's not not fair, is it, my little friend? While some are born to feast, others spend their lives in the dark begging for scraps. The way I see it, you and I are exactly the same. We both want to find a way out. Over the past few weeks, as we've been studying this book, the preacher has been challenging us to examine the vanity of life under the sun. And I think we can all agree it's not a very pleasant task, but according to the preacher, it's absolutely necessary. And the reason why is because in order to live well under the sun, we have to ask the hard questions. We have to openly and honestly face the vanity of the world that we live in. And here in chapter 8, the vanity that Kohelet asks us to face is to quote Scar, that while some are born to feast, others spend their lives in the dark begging for scraps. We have to face the reality that some people end up getting all the breaks while others get none. And that's not fair. It's not fair that the outcomes of our lives aren't based upon our merit. It's not fair that people rarely get what they deserve. And it's this unfairness that causes us to look for a way out. And the preacher begins by taking us to the place where this unfairness of life is most on display. He takes us to a funeral. Look with me now at verse 10. And what we see here in the text is that this is no ordinary funeral. The text says this is a funeral for a person who used to go in and out of the holy place. And what we know from other places in the scriptures is that the holy place was a part of the temple that only clergy could enter into, meaning this person had religious status. Not only that, but the text says that this person was praised in the city, not only a powerful religious figure, but also a powerful social figure as well. And yet in spite of all this, verse 10 says that this person was wicked. And I think that we can all resonate with the preacher's frustration here. It just doesn't sit well with us when the wicked prosper, when they don't get what they deserve. And yet verse 14 declares that this happens all the time. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. We know this to be true. Bad things happen to good people, and good things happen to bad people. As one commentator states, there is a systemic moral blindness that hinders the world from being as it should be. We live in a world that that doesn't care whether or not we do what is right, doesn't care whether we work hard or perform well. None of this, in fact, guarantees a positive outcome. Simply put, life is not fair. Now, I don't think anyone would argue with anything that I've said thus far because all of us have tasted the unfairness of life too many times to object to its reality. But the point of our text is not to prove that life is not fair, but rather to show us how to live well in a life that's not fair. And what we'll see in our text this morning is that we really only have two choices on how to respond to this vanity, to the unfairness of life. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I want to put those two choices before you. And then hopefully in the end, I will uh, commend to you the choice that God desires for us to make. So let's dive in. What we see in this text is that the two choices that we have in response to the unfairness of life is we can either choose to get mine or we can choose to fear God. And choose to get mine or fear God. So let's look first at option one. I can get mine. For those of you who somehow lived under a rock for the past 25 years and have not seen the movie The Lion King, the plot goes like this scar is upset he's jaded because he's been beat out by his brother Mufasa for the role of king of the pride land and scar i think is is right to play the unfair card here the truth is it's simply because of Mufasa's genetics uh, because he was hardwired from birth to be bigger and more powerful that that he gets to be king and not scar and that's not fair but what i want you to focus on is not the unfairness of Scar's life, but rather his response to that unfairness. He clearly chooses option one. He chooses to get his. And the way he does this is by murdering Mufasa so that he can become king. And what's interesting is that often, as it does in real life, his plan works. Scar's wickedness actually bears fruit and produces blessings. It enables him, at least temporarily, to get out of the unfairness of life. Now, before we cast the first stone and and condemn this as heinous and unthinkable for upstanding people like ourselves, I want to remind you why it's so hard to pass up on option one. Look at verse 11. The preacher says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to evil. See, the preacher is rightly pointing out the reason it's hard not to choose this option is because it it works, or at least it it works for a while. The preacher's not saying that the evil deed will never be punished, but normally it takes a long time, and normally that evil produces the desired outcome in the short run. Think about it. We see this in our own lives all the time. Your your friend cheats on a test and, and they get an A and you study your tail off and you get a C. Or maybe your brother or sister tells a lie about who in fact broke the glass, but you end up being the one who gets punished for it. You choose to wait until marriage to have sex and your friends who choose otherwise are the ones who get the prom dates. Your coworker stabs you in the back at work and, and they're the one that get. Promotion and not you. You see why humanity is so prone in the face of the unfairness of life to get mine. It seems to be the only surefire way to get what we want, but thankfully the preacher says there is another option. Verse 12, it says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times, yet I know it will be well for those who fear God. What he's saying is, is we don't have to choose to respond to the unfairness of life with sin. Instead, we can, we can choose to fear God. Now, this phrase, fear God, is, is used often in scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament. And, and what it generally means is not to be afraid of God, but rather to re- revere him, to submit to his authority and lordship in your life which if we're honest would be pretty easy if our lives were full of of bliss but life isn't full of bliss life is often tragic and and it's always unfair and therefore fearing God is very difficult and what our text reveals is that to fear God in this life that is unfair really it requires two things it requires that that we accept first and foremost that the events of our lives are in fact controlled by God and then secondly it it requires that we be okay with not knowing the answer to the question why I want to look at each of these to fear God in this life that's unfair we have to accept that the events of our lives are controlled by God look at verse 16 the preacher says that he applied his heart to know wisdom, to see the biz- business that is done on earth. He's, he's groping for meaning, trying to make sense of it all. And, and, and what he says next is, 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 is so important. He says, then I saw the work of God. What's he saying here? What, he, what he's saying is that after spending all this time and energy trying to figure out the meaning of it all. The only thing that he can walk away with for sure is that everything that is done on the earth is in fact the work of God. Church, whenever, whenever we experience one of those life's not fair moments, I'm not talking about the trivial ones like my sister got a bigger scoop of ice cream than me, but, but the weighty ones like my child has a terminal illness, my dad is abusive, my spouse just left me when we experience moments like that they force us to ask questions not about the world we live in but rather about the God of this world that we live in and the question that we have to ask in those moments is where were you God where were you in the midst of my suffering where were you when I needed you most And it's in those moments that our doctrine of God becomes way less theoretical and and way more practical. And we we have to make a choice. We have to make a choice about what we believe about the character of of our God. And I think really we have three options. And I'm not the first to say this, but I think we can can choose in those moments to believe first that, that either God is distant and doesn't know or doesn't care about what's going on in our lives, or we can choose to believe that God is present, but he's unable to stop the tragedy, or lastly, we can believe that God is both present and able, but for some strange reason, he chooses not to stop it. And those are our three options. That's how we can view God's character, one of those three. And I think it probably goes without stating, but but what we choose to believe about God in those darkest hours, it really matters. It really matters. So what about option one, a, a God who is distant and doesn't care? If this is what you believe about God, then you better get yours because there's no reason to fear a God such as this. But what about Option two, a God who is present but who is simply unable to save you from your trials. And we want to believe this because it appeases our conscience a bit. Because we can believe that that God cares. That he wants it to go better, but, but he just couldn't stop it. He couldn't save us. He couldn't fix it. But once again, we actually have no reason to fear this God either. No reason to revere a God such as this because this God has no more control than we do. This God is just as much in submission to the vanity of life as we are. Which leaves us with option three, a God who is both present and able, but for some reason chooses not to intervene in the tragedy of our lives. Now the problem with this option is that this God appears to be cruel. I mean, if if I were present with my child and they were about to go through extreme suffering, I had the ability to stop it and I chose not to, there would be a consensus. We would all agree, you are a terrible father. What is wrong with you? And yet, strangely enough, the message of chapter 8 and really the book of Ecclesiastes and, and really the whole Bible for that matter is that, To fear God is actually to embrace option three, to believe that God is present, that God is able, but God is sometimes passive in our pain. And this wouldn't be so hard to swallow if God would just tell us why, if he would just give us a reason, give us some sort of rationale for why he just stands there and watches as we suffer under the sun. But look at verse 17 preacher says man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun however much man may toil in seeking he will not find out even though a wise man claims to know it he's lying he cannot find it out either what the preacher is saying is doesn't matter how hard you try doesn't matter how smart you are you will never discern the reason why we will never know why bad things happen to good people why life's not fair and unfortunately, God's not telling. Therefore, to fear God is to, on some level, be okay with not knowing. Did you hear that? To fear God under the sun in this life is to be okay with not knowing why. I often feel like my meetings with people are somewhat disappointing Uh, They're disappointing because as a pastor, I'm supposed to have some sort of direct access to God. And so I'm supposed to be able to answer this question that Kohelet says man cannot answer. Why? Why, God? Why did this happen to me? The truth is, I don't know either. What the preacher is saying here is that to fear God requires that we be okay with, on some level, not knowing don't get me wrong, the preacher is not saying that we shouldn't come to God with our frustrations, that we shouldn't cry out to him in our pain, that we shouldn't plead for his rescue. The Bible is full of examples of God-fearers who come to God angry, frustrated, crying out. But what God is saying, excuse me, what the preacher is saying is that to fear God is to commit to follow him even when he doesn't intervene, even when he stays silent. So there you have it. (laughs) Life's not fair, and we have two choices in terms of how to respond. We can, like Scar, get ours, or we can fear God. We can revere and obey him in spite of the fact that although he is able, he often fails to keep us from the tragedy of life, and he refuses to tell us why. Now, I know what you're thinking. This is not a very convincing argument for option two. Uh, Most of you are right now planning to walk out of here and and go get yours. Um, But before you do, I want you to listen to Kohelet's argument for option two, for fearing God, because I think it's actually pretty convincing. And and it begins here in verse 12. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, goes well for him, Yet I know that it will be well, it will be well for those who fear God. Now what's fascinating here in this, the trajectory of this book is that up until now, we've seen one long drawn out empirical argument. The preacher has utilized the data that he's acquired over his long life lived and the vast and varied experiences that he's had to show how to counteract the vanity of life. He's kind of like a grandparent, in the, you know how grandparents often do. He's arguing from what he's seen and, and what he's observed and, and what he's learned through life experiences. But here, here for the first time, instead of I have seen, he says, I know. He says, I know. As one commentator I think rightly states it's here for the first time that he drops the veil of secularism, and he speaks not from knowledge but from faith. And what he's saying here in verse twelve, he's saying, "I know what it looks like. I know it looks like the sinner is the one who wins. Like 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 getting yours is is actually the pathway to the good life." And he's saying, "Although I can't prove it, there's no evidence that I can point to." He's saying, "I know. I believe that." In the end, it will be well for those who fear God. But how does he know? Or maybe better stated, where does his faith come from? Now, if you'll permit me, I think the clearest answer to that question actually comes from the New Testament, from from the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans 10, he says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, the the faith of the preacher comes from the same place that your faith and my faith comes from, comes from God's word. You see, Kohelet, just like you and me, he heard God's voice. He heard God speak. And the Holy spirit calls that hearing to become something more than just hearing that he calls that hearing to become believing, believing that God is who he says he is and that, that his word is true. And so back to verse 12, the preacher is saying that he knows, he believes because God has said so, not because he can prove it, but because God has spoken that although the wicked prosper under the sun, that those who fear God will prosper in the end, that the God of justice will save his people on the final day. And he knows this because the preacher has heard and believed the covenant that God has made with his people, the promise that God will be our God forever and that we will forever be his people. And Kohelet has no idea how that's gonna play out, but he believes that promise is true. And so he has faith in the midst of this vain life. Remember how I said that the tragedies of of life force us to believe One of three things about the character of God. We can either believe that he's distant, that he's weak, or that he's present. And for some strange reason, he's passive. Church, there's actually no proof that option one or two are false. I can't prove it to you. But rather, like Kohelet, we have to stand upon the word of God. And then and only then will we know and believe in church, we know from God's word that God is not distant because King David reminds us in Psalm 139, which we just heard in this baptism. David says, God, you hem me in. Behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. If I wanted to get away from your presence, God, where shall I go? Where shall I flee? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Church, we know that God is not weak because of what the prophet Jeremiah says. It says, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding he stretched out the heavens. Maybe more clearly stated by the angel Gabriel to the virgin Mary, nothing is impossible with our God. The Bible teaches and we must believe that God is present, that God is able And yet sometimes he chooses not to intervene. But that still doesn't answer the million-dollar question, does it? Even if we believe that God is present and that he is able, if he chooses not to intervene, how can we believe that he is good? The answer is found in the final verse of our text. The preacher says, and this is his epiphany moment, he says, all this I laid to heart examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Don't miss this, church. What this text reveals is that although we'll never know his ways, we do know his hands. The, be- the best neighbor that I've ever had was an old man named Eddie. He-, he lived next door to us for about five years and recently moved away. And Eddie was just a servant-hearted dude. I mean, he just loved so well he loved me and my family so well but the thing i'll I'll never forget about eddie was his hands you see when you shook his hands you you were reminded of who he was because his hands were rough they were calloused and his grip was rock solid and the reason why is because eddie worked for 30 years for waste services here in durham riding the trucks and collecting the trash And it's his work-stained hands that that served as a constant reminder of those 30 years of of hard labor. Brothers and sisters, do you know the hands of our God? Because it's his hands that, that, that often remind us of who he is. As Daniel mentioned, we're in this season of Lent, and in this season we together look to the cross And we're reminded that God's hands are not soft and supple. God's hands are nail-scarred hands, scarred by the nails that God bore for you and for me so that we could be in relationship with him. And, and, And although we don't get the chance like Thomas to touch the scars in his hands, nonetheless, I can tell you that I have come to believe and in believing more and more that his hands are ever with me. And the crazy thing is, church, this is hard to believe, but it's actually in my darkest moments that I have been most convinced that God holds me in his hands. Have you experienced that, church? In your darkest hour where you feel that he's got you. Church, my charge to you this morning is in those darkest hours to heed the wisdom of the preacher. So know that the only way to combat the vanity of this unfair life is with faith. And with the eyes of faith, we search for God's hands in the pain. In church, we cling to God's word. We cling to what it says, believing that even when we can't see him, even when the unfairness remains, we believe that he's still present. He's still holding you in his hands. In a moment, we're gonna sing the children's song He's got the whole world in his hands. And, and I, th- I know you know this, maybe you've never said it before, but there's there certain truths that are they're just too hard to grasp. And so we have to sing them into our souls. And so church, I hope and pray that these simple but profound words that we are about to sing sink down into your soul. And they give you the courage to fear God in a life that's not fair knowing that because God has declared it to be so, because his word has promised, it will be well with those who fear him in the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you have asked us to live in a world that's unfair. We are placed in this world that is full of vanity And at times it causes us to scratch our heads and other times it causes us to shout in anger or frustration or to tremble in fear. And God, the only hope that we have is is in something that we cannot prove, but something that we cling to that we believe is that in the midst of all this vanity that you hold us in your hands, in your nail scarred hands that, that you've got us. Father, I confess that I doubt that all the time. And I pray for me and for every person in here that we would believe more and more and more that it's true that you are holding us in the midst of all this vanity and that it will be well for for those who fear you in the end. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.